On January 23, 2005, a 60-year-old LCC professor was found barely alive in her classroom in the SPS building at Lansing Community College. There was evidence of a brutal struggle, a sexual assault, and the graphic use of a remote control, and a murder. Moments after her discovery, she died. Two days later, police take 27-year-old Claude McCollum into custody for questioning. One day later, McCollum is charged with raping and killing the professor. At trial, jurors are presented evidence, including a supposed confession from McCollum, evidence from his LCC star card that he was on campus at the time of the murder, and the testimony that a clothing fiber may link McCollum to the murder. In April of 2006, McCollum was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I was attending Lansing Community College around this time. I remember the fear the community had when the murder took place, and I remember everyone feeling a bit safer after we thought the rapist and murderer had been caught and sent to prison. What I didn't know at the time was that a serious miscarriage of justice had taken place. What we now know is that Michigan State Police created a report based on security footage from LCC campus. The videotape clearly and definitively proved that Mr. McCollum could not have committed the crime. He was in another part of the campus at the TLC building during the murder. We also now know that another killer later confessed to killing the LCC professor. We know that a fingerprint that was discovered at the scene was linked to a serial killer and that he had been terrorizing Lansing around this time. The serial killer later confessed to killing six people, but may have killed even more. He was quoted as saying to the police, one, two, three, four, five. There's six people, you know, that I have murdered. I murdered them all. Today, my interview is with Judge Hugh Clark Jr. He was a prominent attorney, a school board member, and a district court judge, and many other things. Today I'm talking to him because he was the attorney that helped Claude McCollum win his exoneration and freedom from prison. In this mind-blowing interview, we learn new details that I don't think have been covered in the media. We found out that not only did Michigan State Police know that McCollum was on videotape, proving that he was in another area of the campus at the time of the murder, Judge Clark alleges that the Michigan State Police explicitly stated in the report that, quote, McCollum could not have committed the crime, and that the brother of the victim signed a sworn statement that the assistant prosecutor told him that the prosecutor himself had removed this crucial detail that clearly exonerated McCollum from the report before providing it to McCollum's defense attorney and that the report was only provided to the defense minutes before the detective went on the stand to testify about the videotape evidence. The attorney general later investigated the actions of the assistant prosecuting attorney, and he was later fired from his position. However, in an incredibly shocking and ironic twist that we learn about in this interview, not only was the prosecutor allowed to keep his law license, the state later granted his law firm a monetary grant to go into prisons and teach prisoners how to overturn their wrongful convictions. We also learn that the supposed confession that was entered into evidence against Mr. McCollum was nothing, nothing close to a confession. Mr. McCollum, who had mental difficulties, was a homeless at the time and sometimes slept on the campus, 
was asked during the interrogation about the hypothetical situation in which he may have killed someone. McCollum told the police that he couldn't have done it, but if he had, maybe he was sleepwalking. During the supposed confession, he also gave the police important details that did not match the crime or the victim. In this amazing interview, not only do we learn those details about the troubling conviction of McCollum, we are confronted with a terrifying reality. Matthew Macon was a serial killer that terrorized the Lansing area and confessed to committing at least six murders, many of which involved sexual acts. Born into a home of violence and abuse, Matthew Macon's life was a recipe for disaster. Macon's own history of delinquency and sexual assault began in his youth, leading to multiple stints in facilities for troubled children. Despite completing a sex offender treatment program and being deemed a low risk for reoffending, Macon's dark past foreshadowed the serial killer he would later become. Macon was in and out of prison starting at a young age. When he was only 14, he was arrested for sexually assaulting a girl with a stick, a despicable act that he had allegedly potentially learned and witnessed from his own father. Not only are Macon's crimes horrifying and brutal, we are also confronted with a devastating question when we examine the timeline of events. Macon's first known murder was in 2004, less than a year before the LCC professor's murder in January of 2005. Macon would later go on to kill at least five victims after the LCC professor's murder that we know he committed and has confessed to. We have to ask ourselves a difficult question. If Claude McCollum would not have been wrongly accused and convicted of this murder, would Matthew Macon have been caught in 2005 and potentially five lives would have been saved? In the following interview, we discuss this case and the troubling questions with the Honorable Judge Hugh Clark Jr. We also discuss the time he represented Tupac Shakur, his time on the Lansing School Board, and his views on the criminal justice system. I hope that you find this interview as fascinating as I did. Judge Hugh Clark Jr., thank you so much for joining me. I really oh. appreciate you being here. Um, if we could kind of start out, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, thank you for uh, asking me to participate in this program. I think it's rather timely given some of the national events going on at this time when we talk about justice or the justice system. I was uh, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, uh, did my uh, formal education there in college, transferred, or excuse me, uh, was accepted into Thomas M. Cooley Law School, which is now the Western Michigan University Law School, uh, 1976, graduated in 1979, uh, worked initially as an associate general counsel for the state senate. I did that for a couple of years and uh, I always wanted to go into private practice and um, I grew up watching Perry Mason. So I just knew that was going to be me. I got a big smile on my face when you said Perry Mason, because my father is a avid, avid fan of Perry Mason to this day, still watches it almost every day. Hey, me TV, me TV at nine o'clock in the morning at 1130 at night. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. When I first re when I first retired, I would tell people I don't do anything before ten o'clock. That's because Perry came on at nine, okay, <laughs> and you just have to sit back. But you know, like I said, that's that's part of the problem. 
And I always appreciated the fact that after I tried a case in circuit court, now I would always go back and talk to the jury. And they would be shocked to find out that I was court appointed. They said, well, you worked so hard. I said, they're entitled to a good defense. I would stack my record of trials up against any lawyer at that time and before. Any of them. You name them, I put my record against theirs. I won more murder cases. Okay. I probably tried somewhere between 17 and 22 homicide murder cases I had. Wow. I was trying to, I think. I never had anybody convicted of first-degree murder. I never had anybody convicted of felony murder, which would be a life sentence. I had two people that got convicted of second degree. Now, they were charged with felony murder or first. The rest of them, uh, either we got manslaughter convictions, okay, which I count as a win because you just went from mandatory life to uh, no more than 15, okay? And you really had to do... uh, you really had to screw up in prison for that because usually the sentence might be three to 15, uh, seven to 10 or something like that. Well, that's a whole lot better than 20 to 40 or the rest of your life. And there were three cases. I remember that because of the work I put into it and with my investigator, the prosecutor had no choice, but had to dismiss the case prior to trial or they had the wrong person. They had the wrong person. So, you know, working with Claude was not new to me. I've had people who were charged wrong, okay, that did not commit the offense, okay? Right. I, I've seen that. I've gone through that. And, you know, some lawyers, want, some prosecutors just want to go ahead and try it anyway. I'm like, you know, okay, fine. You know, you want to put another notch in my gun belt, I'm not going to stop you. But, you know. We get a jury that comes back after 45 minutes and says not guilty. That says something. Yeah. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, Claude McCollum. Um, so I guess we, uh, we should just dive into it. So could you give us some background on what happened with the LCC professor murder? Um, just to give us some background there um, before Mr. we jump into Claude McCollum. Yeah, Carolyn Cronenberg was a... Um, she was an instructor there at the college and that main building that sits right there on Capitol Avenue. Uh, she came to work one uh, morning, Sunday morning. And uh, from what I understand, she was loading her stuff up on a cart and we going through the door to take the elevator to go up to the second floor. Uh, she was in her room, her classroom. When a person entered the classroom, there was a physical struggle. Uh, an assault and a sexual assault, and she was killed. Uh, that rocked the, the city because it happened right downtown, okay, in downtown Lansing. And the Lansing uh, police came out, but this was like the jurisdiction, really, Lansing Community College Police. And after a, moment, after a while, they decided they were going to investigate it and they didn't need help from LPD. There was an interview with Claude and I can't recall really how he came on their radar. And let me say this. I did not represent him at that time at his arrest and trial. 
where he was convicted. I did not represent him. Okay. But apparently Claude was on their radar. They had checked, you know, to get in the computer lab in the building, they had a star card, which is just like a card you would uh, swipe to oh, enter yeah. into yeah, the lab. Those, yep. And around the time she was killed, I think they went back and looked at people who may have been in the building and there was Claude. But the one thing about the video they had at the time, and they had video of him coming in and out of the lab, but there was no timer on it, either uh, counting down or counting up hours, minutes, and seconds, or, you know, standard time, you know, 8 o'clock, 2.30 a.m., whatever it was. They could only go by the swipe card in terms of his entry and exit. And they came upon Claude, and they questioned him, and, you know, he gave them a, a flip response. And the response at one point in one of the questions was, yeah, right, I killed her. And they took that as a confession. Okay. That's like if someone tells you, man, kiss my rear end. Okay. Do you really think you're going to kiss their rear end? Okay. No, of course you're not. And, and it, it's that mean. Claude, you have to understand, I think they knew Claude was not, Claude had some mental health challenges, shall we say. And we found out during, later on during, once I came into the case in a note, some other lawyers I brought in and we were working on the civil case, uh, we discovered through the hospital records that Claude at the time of birth, uh, there was some oxygen deprivation. Okay. And, and that led to him um, having mental health issues. Okay. He wasn't, I hate to say he wasn't there fully, but you know, okay. And they took advantage of him and he was arrested and they claimed they had, and you know, a lot of things and we're going to get into that when we talk about the trial, but that's kind of the buildup. And they went to trial. Claude was convicted. He was sentenced to prison. It was in front of Judge Giddings, was the, was the judge, trial judge. And it sat there until somehow on appeal, they discovered there may be a problem with the case, the attorney he had at that time. And they in the prosecutor's office are kind of looking at each other like, uh-oh. And it was interesting because Claude's brother made an appointment to see me and it was more about representing the family, being the mouthpiece uh, to handle the media, not to do the law to handle the media. And I was like, well, okay, you know, I can do that. And, you know, I talked, we talked more and I, and I, and I had a chance to meet with Claude and they just decided, well, you know what? We want Hugh Clark to represent him. So you have this case up here in the court of appeals, which is about to get kicked back to, uh, circuit court in Ingham County because they realized there was a problem and they, it, it came back and there was, and obviously there were a lot of issues. We're going to get into that. And at that point I filed an appearance and became involved in the case from that level. One of the first things we did is uh, went in and filed a motion and asked judge Giddings to issue an order to have Claude sent from Michigan department of corrections sent him back to the Ingham County jail. 
Okay. He's no longer a convicted person. So he should be here. Why should I have to get in the car and drive all over the state of Michigan, wherever he was, you know, spend time to interview him have had, you know, some of those places you spend more time on the road than you would sitting there talking to your client, which judge Giddings did. I mean, he realized that and did he? Judge Giddings was a great judge. He was very fair. He was fair. And what was it that came up that uh, alerted the brother and others that there might be a problem with the case at that time? Well, the brother and them, they got that from the appellate attorney. Okay. I mean, Claude, they, he'd always maintained he didn't do it. Okay. That he, he wasn't involved in this. And, you know, we were able to prove there was that. A, there was a dramatic point in his in his uh, conviction when he he stood up and dressed the families and said that he wasn't guilty of this, right? And yeah, yeah. But you know, people look at it. Yeah, that's what they all say. You know, when they say they're going to appeal, yeah, all guilty people appeal. People they look at that because it. it you have people who say that, and you know, they're guilty as three left feet. Okay, but you know, they have a right to appeal. Uh, but with with Claude, I mean, they have they found out somehow. And I think it was somewhere about that he may not have been there at the time. And as we progress in this, you're going to see where that came from. Okay. Uh, after we got Claude down here, and I was able to talk to him a couple times at the county jail, I then went and you know they was talking about you know retrial and this and that, and I'm like, well, you didn't do it. And after a while, we were actually able to get Judge Gidding to grant my motion for bail and to release Claude on his own recognizance, okay, uh, which, you know, he did. And that was, and I never, I'll never forget going out to get him that night from the jail once he was processed because it was raining and had this big umbrella and he and I huddled under it trying to get to the car, but there was a crush of media there and we had to stop and talk to them and subsequently they the prosecutors office they end up dismissing the case the, the argument the assistant prosecutor made eric matoizic he claimed see what happened there was a report from michigan state police um uh, sergeant, sergeant young right jim young yep he had a report he did, and the report, uh, he was their technical support person, and he analyzed the video. He put a timer on it, and he said to them, and he had in the report that at the time Ms. Cronenberg was being killed, Claude McCollum was in another part of the building. That was actually in his report. They claimed, well, this this assistant prosecutor claimed, as all this is coming out, that he gave that report during a court, during one of the trial sessions to uh, Claude's attorney. Well, you know, Judge Giddings wasn't happy that, you know, this stuff's happening on his watch in his court. And I understand he went back, he had a video courtroom. His courtroom was all video at the time. He went back looking through videos to see that. He didn't. Wow. There was, in the attorney general report, when he ended up um, 
you know, investigating how the uh, false uh, arrest and conviction happened, you know, they had made this uh, uh, an assertion in there that the report was given, but the prosecutor didn't review it with anybody but the family and internally. And then as Sergeant Young was going up on trial, on the stand, that they provided to him minutes before that he was going to testify. And you're saying that even that, which already seems terrible, even that didn't happen, that it wasn't seen on videotape of him actually giving it. No. Here's what happened. Wow. The report that had that sentence or two at the end, there was a break they took. And they were up, the, the prosecutor... Matoizic and Marie Wolf. Now, I'm not, I, all I'm going to say is this. When they came back and report they had, that part was not on the report. It was taken off. He had discussed, and we found out during the civil trial prep, one of my attorneys I had, I, I, I sent him, he went to visit Miss Cronenberg's son, where it was somewhere out of the Lansing area he was living. I can't remember where. Interviewed him. We got an affidavit signed and sworn to by him that during a break in the trial, he was in the witness room. And this prosecutor, assistant prosecutor Matoisa came in and her son said to him, well, you know, they talked about the report. And after the guy testified, they're in that room and the kid and the son said to the assistant prosecutor, wow, his lawyer is a pretty good lawyer. How did he miss that? Because he didn't ask him about it. And he said, the assistant prosecutor told him, because I took it out. Wow. We had an affidavit from him that said so, that he took it out. It had, they had cleaned it up and took that part out. We found out during the civil trial Jim Young was not comfortable with any of this. Now, you know, he turned out in the end to be one of our better witnesses, though he should have done it at the time. So so the Sergeant Young, who is his uh, working for the state police, is reviewing these videotapes and sees on the videotape that Mr. McCollum is in another area in the TLC building at LCC and could not have been in the other area during this portion of when this horrible crime was being committed. He writes this report and provides it to the prosecution, the yeah. prosecution and the prosecution removes the portion where Mr. Young says that Mr. McCollum could not have committed this crime because he was in another area. And you it's get a sworn affidavit, uh, affidavit from uh, the the brother of the the victim that says that this happened that the oh, that the prosecutor the son, told him this her the son. son the son it's that worse is, than it's, it's worse than, it's worse than that during the trial prep this assistant prosecutor went out and talked to Jim Young and Jim Young told us that he gave him hell saying, well, why did you put that in that report? You didn't have to put that in there. Nobody asked you for that. And told him, because he went to try the case and to prep it, and Jim Young, Sergeant Young told us, he said to him, what, that case is going to trial? Really? You can't win that case because that night. He said, I didn't ask you to put that in there, and I don't know why you did. 
and, and then told him, you can understand, don't mention it. Wow. Yeah. And I, I saw in one of the articles that Mr. Young was riddled with guilt over what had happened. He uh, should have been. Yeah. He should have been. He, he knew at that time. Okay. He should have said something. He should have gone over this kid's head to uh, Prosecutor Dunnings, or he should have went to his supervisor at, at uh, MSP. He could have went to the captain of whoever was in charge of the, the Michigan Post that he was at. Now, am I glad he came around and helped us out in the end? Yes. But you know what? It didn't have to happen. Right. Right. But here's Claude, you know, black guy, got some mental health issues. He's not all there. He's kind of a homeless guy roaming around. They didn't give a damn. They didn't care. That would have never happened. Never would that have happened to a white student from Okemos or some other rich-ass area. It would not have happened. So when we talk about justice system, okay, let's just get it clear. And you have an obligation as a prosecutor. You have an obligation Okay, to not bring that case forward and to do something about it. But Torzik did nothing, nothing. And the state bar grievance and the state bar grievance committee didn't even suspend his license when it came to their attention. They called me and I told him, I said, look, there's an affidavit. When you you had a file, he said he had documents. I said, you look in the file. There's an affidavit from Miss Cronenberg's son saying he told him he took that out of the report. You don't need anything from me. So after the so the attorney general ends up investigating the case and the prosecutor ends up firing um, that assistant prosecutor, I believe. Right. Yep. But he but his his law license was never in jeopardy. It was never taken. You want to hear some ironic stuff. He is a working for a law firm in Ottawa County. Who had received a grant from the state to have someone go to the prisons and teach and lecture uh, inmates on how to file a grief, how to appeal their conviction. And that's what death of Matoizic was doing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. I was just, I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. That is ironic. I mean, it's rare that you actually get real definitions of, of ironic and that is real mm-hmm. irony. That That is, that's, how do you handle that when when you see this level of uh, either incompetence or worse, you know, malevolence? Or I guess, you know, now that you are retired, you can speak freely. Um, what do you attribute this to when you see this? Do do you think this is uh, racism playing out, or do you what think else that this is? Yeah, yeah. Older white woman killed. Here's a black guy they arrest for doing it. They hit the first person off the street. He's investigated by Lieutenant Rodney Ball. By this time, he's Lieutenant back then. He was a sergeant of the uh, community, Lansing Community College Police, who testified in deposition. The only cases prior to this one he'd ever investigated were shoplifting out of the bookstore and maybe a stolen car. And, and, and he's doing a murder case. They did not want LPD's help or assistance. And they had a retired LPD officer working 
with their public safety department who had investigated one or two murder cases during his time with LPD. They didn't let him know we're near the case. This was their case. We're going to solve it. We're the champions, and there we come. Screwed up and, from the beginning. And LCC has that kind of jurisdiction? With it, it, I yeah. didn't even know that they had that within land. Wow. He still works there. At least he did. They never fired him. He got demoted, but he cost them a couple million bucks. And yeah, he still worked I, there. And so we now know um, from your work and others that the the person that was reviewing the videotape knew that Mr. McCollum, who ended up being wrongly convicted for this, was in another area for, I think it was like two hours they had him on video um, that could not have been at this, the spot or the scene where the murder had taken place. So we know that now. Then there was a, um, one of the jurors was interviewed. Her name was Tina. I reached out to her, but um, she didn't uh, get back to me. But she was she was interviewed and she said that she thought that Mr. McCollum was innocent up until the point that the evidence of the supposed confession came in. Now, when we were looking at that confession, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but my understanding is that, like, Mr. McCollum was asked, you know, it, it kind of, you you did this, if you did this, how would you have done it? And he started kind of pontificating on, well, maybe I was sleepwalking or maybe I did these things. Exactly. Is that correct? How did that? How did that all come about? Well, because they were questioning him. And, you know, like I said, you got to understand, you know, if Claude was, say, for example, 20 at the time, he kind of had the mind of like a 10 or 12-year-old, okay? And let's just back up for a minute. So once, you know, we're on the case and we're looking at it, not only from getting it finally dismissed, but for the civil suit, we got a copy of the video uh, of, from the TLC building. And you see Claude come out of the lab and he sits in a chair outside of the lab, which is to the um, southern part of the building, the southern entrance. And then they have that north entrance further up. He gets up at one point and he walks out and he goes out the back door. And then a couple minutes later, he comes back. He sits down. And he's got all gray sweatsuit. Okay. And he sits back in that chair. And I'm telling you, man, I'm watching this video from hours, and it's like watching paint dry. Because he's just sitting there. He's asleep. Yeah, he it, he was homeless at the time, right? And right. sometimes would sleep at the campus and then was a sometime student there. Yep. Now, I didn't notice it the first time. You know, so you wait a couple of days, and you're like, okay, let me sit back and watch this again. Click. As I'm watching it. I notice it's starting to get light outside because Claude's in the picture and there's the door and it was dark the whole time. I didn't catch it the first time. Well, so now you can see sunrise. Mm. I contact the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We send them a subpoena. They send us a certified copy of sunrise, sunset for that day. And the sun rose that day, say, 8.03 or something. Claude's sitting there. Now you put a stopwatch on it. That's 
Ms. Cronenberg has already entered the building and is upstairs in her room being beaten, assaulted, and killed. Claude is sitting here in the chair. Now, why these folks couldn't figure it out is beyond me, but that speaks to the fact that they don't have that experience, okay? I'm not a police officer, but I knew to do that because I represent a lot of people in a lot of these homicide cases and that kind of stuff, you know, you go through and do. Yeah. I mean, there was no way. That's why, that's why he had it in his report. He was in another part of the building and could not have committed the crime. And there were, so he, he starts getting questioned. And as, as we stated, he had mental challenges. um, And he starts just kind of, telling a story really to satisfy these police officers. It it sounds like of saying, well, maybe, maybe I was sleepwalking. Um, And then I believe he was asked for pretty specific details. You know, in this case, there was um, some graphic things happen. You know, it was a rape, it was a murder and there was um, penetration with a, with an object um, to the victim and uh, in a sexual manner. And, in this discussion, Mr. McCollum said that there was white panties on the victim and they ended up being purple. Um, and then there was DNA under the victim's fingernails that hadn't been tested and hadn't matched Mr. McCollum. And there was a baggie um, there at the scene, too, that the fingerprints were never never uh, examined and did not match Mr. McCollum uh, in the resulting um investigation. Um, so there were so many things that just didn't add up. Um, how, how do you think that this, I mean, I recall at the time that everything happened so fast. I believe he was arrested like two or three days after the murder. It was just so quick. Um, what, what do you think happened there? How did this, how did all of these people get this so wrong and put a wrong person in jail? Because they were so because they were so quick to solve the crime to assure everybody, yeah, Lansing is safe, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now, there are three ways to do an investigation. One is to exclude a suspect. Two, to include a suspect. Or three, open. You you go wherever the facts take you. Okay? And I shouldn't do this, but they took number two. <laughs> okay. That was perfect. They, they, yeah, they, they, I'm sorry, but they, they, took, they took number two. They figured, well, we have this statement, right. we have this confession, we don't need to do any of this. I now, gotcha. Yeah, now, they, they had honed in on the person that they thought that did it, so they they didn't worry about the other evidence. They were just focusing on how do we how do we get this person? And what happened because of that? How many other people, women, were killed in Lansing because of that? That's right. Um, and and that is uh, really, really concerning. Um, so, yeah. So you're alluding to Matthew Macon. Yep. The the serial killer, as he's called, um, that committed 
six, seven, maybe more murders, uh, six that he confessed to. And he later confessed to this killing. Yep. Um, and there was one quote that he had that just stood out to me uh, when he was being in investigated. And uh, he, he said, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. There's six people, you know, that I have murdered. I murdered them all. And in 2004, we now know that he murdered Barbara Jean Tuttle at 45. Uh, her body was found uh, in the location where another victim was actually found. Right. So this would have been before Carol Cronenberg's murder in January 23 of 2005. And Mr. McCollum, who was wrongly convicted for it, was arrested and uh, convicted for that. Um, and Mr. Uh, Matthew Macon was actually the, the real perpetrator of Carol Cronenberg's murder. Um, and Mr. Macon ended up getting arrested again in June 2005, so uh, about six months after the murder of Carol Cronenberg, uh, Carol, Carol Cronenberg, excuse me, and was in prison when Mr. McCollum went to trial and Mr. Macon actually knew Mr. McCollum and said that he was delighted that uh, Claude McCollum was actually being tried for the 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 murder and rape that he had actually committed. We took it off of him. They were at some point around that time. They were in jail together. Okay. Really, they happened to be in jail together for an evening or I don't know, maybe a period of time. But you know. This was so when when Mr. McCollum was arrested for the murder, he ended up spending time in jail with the actual murderer. At some point, they were in lockup, either at LPD or out at the county jail for a period of time. You, you got to understand, there were so many things with this investigation. Uh, uh, you know, the, the one beauty of doing the civil suit is discovery in Michigan as the case law says, is broad and far-reaching. We can get anything we want. And we were loading up, getting so much information. I remember sitting in uh, Bonnie's one day for lunch, and I had a stack of papers I'm looking through, and I was waiting for one of the other attorneys from out of town was going to meet me there. And I'm going through some reports of stuff I just picked up from Lansing Police Department there uh, uh, quartermaster, because some of the, lot of the evidence, LCC police were storing there at LPD. And I ran across a report. This sergeant at the time, Ball from LCC, he went to Lansing quartermaster, took out some evidence. The evidence included a pink sweater that Ms. Cronenberg was wearing, some of Claude's clothing, and there was one other object I don't remember. But I remember his report saying what time he went to uh, LPD to get it and what time he got out to the lab at Michigan State Police, which is off out there on Canal Road. 45 minutes. I'm thinking, it don't take 45. He said he took the expressway. 
it don't take 45 minutes to get there. And I sat there and brought up Google Maps. And from LPD to the Lamb Darrell Canal Road, it's like a 22-minute drive. Here he's twice as long. You know, the weather was bad. They had some snow out. But not to the extent it would have taken him that long. They had at his trial, they found fibers from her sweater on a jogging suit. The jogging suit was a blue fila nylon jogging suit. When we started this podcast, what did I tell you Claude had on? Gray. Yeah. How them things get on his clothes? I'm thinking, this is some Mark Furman crap. Wow. I'm just, I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. They want to talk about if, how could it be transferred from, okay, with the amount that they had. He had on gray. If they had a gray flannel uh, sweatsuit, like the cotton ones, and it was on there, I say, yeah, that's the issue. But it was on a different piece. And that gray jogging suit wasn't even in the bag with the stuff they took out to the lab for testing. Okay. That's why I'm telling you, there was so much stuff that went on. Now, they're busy taking that out there to identify these fibers, but like you said, they didn't check the DNA under her nails. Okay? They didn't take the fingerprints off that baggie. There were just so many things they didn't do, and they basically were just trying to cook this case together to say, this is it. Yes, Lansing is now safe. Come back downtown. Go to LCC. Walk around. Do whatever it is you want to do. That's what they were real. That's what they were trying to do as well. I'm not going to say they weren't trying to find the person that killed her, but they were inexperienced and ill-equipped to do that. That just all you ever investigated before was somebody stealing a book out of the bookstore. <laughs> Why do you think you can now investigate a murder? Come on. Was there any any evidence at the trial presented that actually demonstrated that that fiber that was part of the um, part of what they used to convict him that it was actually tied to him? I mean, if he was, wearing I believe gray, they did. Like they did. I, you know, I'm not going to say they. Some, you know, lawyers try cases different. Like I said, I didn't represent him at the time, but that would have been a big question. Yeah. Okay. And and I think somebody who thinks, well, that was a confession, they got you saying that. Like I said, to me, it's like you and I say something, I say your mama. Mm -hmm. Which is what Claude basically was saying. Yeah, right. right. I killed her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and now, you know, with making a murder and all these other, you know, all the dateline and everything, everybody's kind of aware of the, the um, flaws of interrogations and some of the ways that especially people that are uh, have potentially mentally cha mental challenges can be victimized in those sure. and, and end up speaking out loud about things that aren't actually true, but just telling stories to satisfy whoever is interrogating them. Was the fact that he actually said that he was, may have been sleepwalking. Was that presented at the original trial? Did My understanding was they brought all that stuff up. You know, once they talk about his confession, his confession okay they brought all of that stuff up frankly Claude was not uh, i don't think Claude was even competent to understand his rights and what they were talking about 
Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're simple enough. And he's sitting there talking, but you know, they got him saying all kind of stuff. And like I said, he doesn't know any better. I mean, I can't put it any simpler than that. He didn't know anybody. He had no idea what he was saying. And to, to that extent, why would you even put that to mean he's the guilty person where you have, to me, if you're investigating this homicide case, okay, so you think you have a confession. Let's see what else we have to build on that. Mm-hmm. Suppose somebody argues, well, you know, he's got the mind of a 12-year-old. He's incompetent to understand it, blah, 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 blah. Well, out goes a confession. Now what do you have? Good point. What do you got now? Yeah. Okay. So that's why you would that's why you would do the DNA test. I mean, there's a rapid one they could do just to see if he's even in the ballpark. Okay. Send the bag in and get it tested. I mean, there are other evidence there. I mean, the the room looked like her room looked like there had been quite a struggle. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the injuries to her. And you have the report from Young that says he could not, he didn't do it because he was in another part of the building. So right. he did do it. They said he could not have. Right. Because he was a different part of the building at the time she was killed. Unbelievable. Well, like Unbelievable. I said, it, is right, it, it, it was right there to see. Once you, once the light goes on, like I said, and you see all of a sudden, yeah, you know what? Boom. Sunrise. Okay. The sun's up. What time was that? If she was killed around 8.20, 8.30, I'm thinking, sun's up at 8.03, cloths in their sleep, start the stopwatch. Okay. Tick, 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 man. Uh-uh. Didn't happen. It's interesting, too. You know, you alluded to that the the brother had indicated, or brother or son that indicated that, um, you know, the prosecutor may have removed por- a portion of the report. No, there was a son. Uh, there was no mayhem. He told him, "I right. took it out." Okay, because those in the in that attorney general report, they said something like the 2005 report had an, a typo. They said, and I thought that was really weird, and said it was corrected in 2006. I wonder if that typo was what was removed, and they alluded to it as a typo. Is that maybe what happened? Young, Young had the original report, okay? Like I said, there were, and see, I think they made a copy of it because, as I recall, Sister Pascu Matoizic went upstairs to his office to confer with someone. His co-counsel at the table went in Judge Giddings' chambers area and made a copy of something, and then she went upstairs. Okay. I, it, he, like I said, make no mistake. And we had an affidavit from her son that said, he asked, he said, you know, his lawyer is pretty sharp. How did he miss that? And he told us that because I took it out. Unbelievable. That may have, that thought about it. He said, he told him I took it out. And this gentleman is still practicing law today. As far as I know. I don't know how you sleep at night. I I just don't. I I don't understand how you can sleep at night knowing, okay, that you've done something like that to somebody. 
right. that you put, that you actively participated and put the wrong person in, in jail. So Mr. McCollum ends up spending almost two years in jail. He Three. Almost, three years. Well, when you look at the time, he was locked up out of Eagle oh, County. Right. And through, he was, I'm thinking maybe it was 39 months or something in that neighborhood. Wow. Okay. And how was, it, now at this point, the report is now clear that the this uh, sergeant is saying, he could not have committed this. They, at this point, the prosecutor has admitted that the the serial killer that we'll get into has confessed to the killer, uh, to the killing. Um, what was the process like to actually successfully get Mr. McCollum out of prison? How how was that? Was that a smooth process? Was now that everybody sees clearly that he couldn't have done this, was it just oh. like let's open the doors and get this out as soon as po- this guy out as soon as possible, or? Oh, we had him out before that. Wow. No, we had him out before that. I mean, they were talking. I mean, and actually, when I looked over the prosecutor's file, it's interesting because there's an assistant down there arguing against bail. And I remember at some point later going through the prosecutor's file, had a subpoena, looked through their file of the case, and they had a motion in there for release on bail. So I don't even know why she was down there arguing against it. But like I said, Judge Giddings knew that. Okay. Uh, so he was out, you know, before that. And then, as, as I recall, and then once this thing with Macon came, I mean, it was just like, okay, uh, you know. Oh, wow. He was out before. Um, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I had him out before then. Wow. That's, in, that's incredible. And so. Then it proceeds to a civil trial, I believe, and you represented. We never went to trial. We ended up settling the case. It went to uh, mediation. You know, we sued everybody. You know, we're in federal court. We sued everybody, you know. And, you know, correct application of the law. Everybody's getting dismissed. Well, you can't sue Ninth Amendment. You can't sue the city of Lansing. So, boom, we lost them. You know, yeah, you can't sue Stuart Diamond. We lost him. And everybody's getting dismissed. And we're sitting there like, oh, my gosh. The only person didn't get dismissed, Rodney Ball. And we kept saying to the judge, Judge uh, Quist, and we just felt, man, this guy's just hammering, he's beating us, hammer and tong. When he wrote an opinion, okay, we had filed motions to move the trial to Lansing and against dismissing him. Judge Quist wrote an opinion, and it started in parentheses with the paragraph that from Sergeant Young's report that said, at the time the crime was committed, Claude was seen on camera in another part of the building and could not have committed this offense. I saw that. I said, yeah, we're about to get what we want. And he did. He hammered him. He, and he, he said the case will be tried in Lansing. Now, you get a jury pool from the entire western part of the state of Michigan. Doesn't mean we would have a lot of people on Lansing. But it happened in Lansing. You got a lot of media in Lansing covering it. Uh, Kevin Grasha from the Lansing State Journal was all over it. Uh, And I let him interview Claude a couple times with me. And then he wanted to do uh, like a feature piece on Claude. And I couldn't be there. And I said, well, you know, Kevin. 
I'm going to trust you to do it, but boom, boom, boom. I said, once we file the civil suit, there's stuff you can't ask it, you cannot talk about. And he honored that. Okay. I always had a lot of respect for Kevin Grasha. He's Cincinnati now. And, you know, he spent the day with him and they wrote all this stuff, but it was just, we had, we went to mediation. They had a judge, a magistrate judge there for that as well. And we kind of got that settled in chambers. I mean, they knew. They knew. You're not going to beat this case. Like I said, we're here in Lansing. You're going to get media coverage here. Chances are we'd have a couple, three people here. Let me tell you, people felt sorry for Claude. People were really, there were a lot of people ticked off. Yeah. I can yeah, remember. I, I was one of them. I remember this distinctly. This is why I wanted to, to talk to you, Judge. Because yeah. I remember feeling, how could this happen in our backyard? You know, you, you see these things on TV and on Perry Mason from my father and us watching it growing up, but you didn't think it would happen in your backyard. You wonder, how could this happen? So, yeah. Well, like I said, it wasn't a surprise to me because I've seen it happen before. Right. I, I've been involved in those, in those cases where wrong person. You got the wrong person. Okay. And one of them was a, um, it was a vehicular death. And they had arrested my client for that. And a couple people came to me and said, no, it wasn't him. It was so-and-so and this and that. And there were some people who were in the car with him. When they come, I interview them. But when I finished the interview, I called the police detective. I said, yeah, so-and-so, I'm about to bring them over there to talk to you. And drop them off. They had to end up, I mean, the prosecutor didn't like that, but why are you talking to them first? I was like, because they called. Okay. What are you trying to say? I told them what to say? Come on, man. I don't have to, I don't, I don't have to do that. And they actually found out it wasn't him. Uh, there was another case I had involved a shooting at uh, uh, the Elks Lounge out there on the South MLK. Uh, Jack Warren was his name, and I represented him. And to the wrong guy. And, and, and that case was interesting because the victim's stepsister was at the bar that night too. And she said it was, she told it wasn't him because uh, she said he was outside. And at one point when he was outside the bar, a group of people had surrounded him and were beating on him, on my client. Because she said she jumped in there with her can of mace spraying people. And she said, and that's when she heard the gunshot, and it wasn't him. Even the report, when you read the report, said the guy that shot him was, they described him as 6'2", slim Bill. Jock was 5'10", about 230, real stout, muscular guy. Okay. But then we went to the preliminary exam in Lansing District Court, Judge DeLuca, he didn't care. He heard the testimony, bound it over anyway. Okay. I always like judges that, you know what? Yeah, you know what? Some stuff you go, you let go to the jury. But here you have the victim's death sister saying it was not him. Okay. We got in the circuit, we got in the circuit court and had a pretrial uh, prosecutor at that time, uh, Mike Ferencin, deceased, he died last year. Great guy. He and I had many, many trials together. Our stuff was legendary. Uh, we'd go at it hammer and tong, and then we'd go have a beer afterwards. But he read through and saw all the information, um, and he dismissed the case. 
Wow. So to so would this to have happened to Claude? No. Claude was a patsy. He was an easy patsy because he didn't kind of know any better. Mm-hmm. I say, and they were just out. They just wanted to make sure they got this case and got this guy and the person that did it, and he just was the handy one. Right. Now, the serial killer that ended up confessing to the instructor's murder, um, you alluded to this earlier, he ended up going on to killing five more that we know of. Um, can you talk to, are you familiar with that case? Can you talk to us I, about that case? I'm I'm familiar only from what I read, you know, in the papers that, you know, we had his confession. And, and it's interesting too, because I'm trying to recall, I don't have those files. Claude wanted everything once it was all said. And I was like, gave it to him. But I remember there was a notebook. Uh, and, and I don't know, I can't remember now who it had come from. It had something in there about Macon, and, and I just can't recall. And, you know, we were at some point kind of looking at him, and then when he got busted and admitted to these things, you know, at this point now the question becomes, okay, so who's signing the check? Okay. And then it was, I mean, it was just, you look at, and I'm not minimizing life in terms of people pre-Cronenberg, but if you look at the people who were killed after Ms. Cronenberg by Macon, because these people had the wrong person, those people could be alive today. Yeah, that's that's right. So uh, in 2004, he is suspected of killing Barbara Jean Tuttle. Then in January of 2005, um, about a year later or so, uh, he he killed Karen Cronenberg, the LCC instructor, um, but wasn't prosecuted for that. Uh, Claude McCollum went to jail for that. And then in June 2005, Macon is arrested, incarcerated. He did a home invasion and assault. He was sentenced to 12 months in jail. Uh, while in prison, um, McCollum goes to trial. Um they may have actually it crossed paths in that in that time. Um, May two thousand and six, uh, Matthew Macon has his third probation violation. He was sent back to prison, and then in June twenty sixth of two thousand and seven, he's released from prison again. And then only a month later, exactly, he kills Ruth Holliman. Then August 7th, uh, about, a, about a month later or so, he kills Deborah K. Cook. Then two days later, he kills Deborah Renfor. Uh, then four days later, he kills Sandra Eichhorn. Then one day later, um, a 56-year-old woman is assaulted. August 15th, a day later after that, he kills Karen Yates. And then finally is arrested on August 28th. Um, so there were so many points throughout this that he was in prison and he uh, he's also a gentleman who had a long, long history with police. Um, his, his childhood was terrible. He allegedly, his father was abusive. Um, his older sister was taken and placed in foster care in 1983 um, he may have been sexually abused by his father as well. Uh, his James Macon Sr., the father, 
uh, apparently used broomsticks and other objects uh, when he was performing his his crimes. And then we know that the Matthew Macon ends up later using these. Uh, he used a stick on a victim in one of them. He used a, an item on the instructor as well. And then in he ends up Mr. Macon, uh, Matthew Macon ends up going to prison, running away, escaping. And then in when he was 14, he was arrested for sexually assaulting a girl with a stick. Uh, in 1994, he appeared in Ingham County Ju Juvenile Court after escaping from Highfields. And he was sent to W.J. Maxey Boys Training School near Ann Arbor. He remained in the court's temporary custody through 1996. By age 16, in 1996, Ingham Juvenile Court hearing, a court referee said, although Macon was making progress in the program sex offenders, he required lifetime vigilance. But then, however, less than a year later, in October of 1997, he completed a sex offender training treatment program. The court records show that a social worker believed the likelihood he would commit another sex offense was very slim, quote. Well, you, you know, these healthcare professionals have, I mean, the different ways they look at it. I mean, you don't have a crystal ball, but you have to believe someone with that background, that history, there's, and, and frankly, I mean, it's always been said that uh, sex offenders have the highest rate of recidivism than any other group. So I don't know how you can just say the likelihood is low. What we see now, it is. He obviously has some type of dysfunction going on as well because he's using an object on these women. Now, I don't know if he did a figure, okay, you know what? I'm not going to leave any DNA or trace evidence if I use this object. I don't know what he's thinking, but there's there's something there that's kind of, you know, not right. I mean, if you sexually assault someone, but you use an object, you don't use your own body part or anything. There's something there that should have been a telltale sign. And okay. it's so eerie that that is what his father had done before. Um, it's it's such a well, tragedy. But, but, you know, the, the problem with it is, uh, and people that have mental health issues, is what can you do about it? Uh, there were people who had mental health issues that would come in front of me. They're great people, but when they stopped taking their medication, that's when they will go off the rails and find themselves on the other side of the law and standing in front of me. I'm limited in what I can do. I mean, how do we ensure that people stay on their medication. How do you do that? Right. What, you have to come down here to court every morning and we get to put the pill on your tongue? Well, we're not equipped to do that. And then that's the problem that we run into in this. And this, and this, this is not anything that that's, you know, just Lansing problem. This is a nationwide issue uh, where you have people with mental health issues and they, they stop taking their meds or they're off their meds and they go commit an offense. Well, yeah, one can say that's an easy way to come up with an excuse for what they did, but the point of reality is, is that's exactly what it is. And how do you supervise someone on probation to make sure that they are taking their medication? Other than, you know, trying to test them every day, 
which you don't have the manpower to do. Everybody wants crime solved, but nobody wants to pay for it. Right. Do you have any magic wand solutions that you think, you know, if you were a dictator for a day that could actually fix this tragedy? Well, I don't know. Solve this issue of mental health in America? I, I don't. I mean, stuff I would think about, you guys would really think I'm crazy, so I'm not going to go there. I like that. Okay. Well, you don't look, you know, in some countries, they're like, what 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 offending part of the body did they use? And they chop it off. Then you got some countries, you steal what hand, all they want to know what hand did they use? They use the left hand, boom, you know, all of a sudden that left hand is gone. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's, I, I don't, I mean, what do you do? I mean, it's not a matter of giving somebody a pill today that will suppress that urge to uh, be violent or to uh, act out or to commit a sexual sexual offense there's no magic pill for that and it's something that someone has to take again on a regular basis and again how do you enforce that how do you make sure they're doing that and they're taking their meds i mean if they're incarcerated that's easy mm-hmm. but it's kind of like well you know they're gonna sexually there's no history of ever sexually assaulting someone of the same sex okay so you think they may not necessarily assault one of their inmates, okay, but the jail is not a place for mental people with mental health issues. That's you know I would see that. I mean, I had one guy, I mean he he would get arrested for let's say uh, disorderly conduct. Well, you know, the police would go to release him the next morning and he would assault a police officer. So now he's got another case. The one po- And as long as his case was open and assigned to me, every other case he caught while this first one is open was coming to me. I had nine cases with him. I had mental health issues. I mean, he constantly, I mean, what do you do? I mean, at some point, you know, the police got to be, look, okay, you can't keep taking the guy to jail. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to help. I mean, we were finally able to, I got the city attorney and uh, his attorney at one point in my office, we closed the door and I told him, look, this guy has nine cases. He has some mental health issues. You two need to figure out what we're going to do about this and get the case resolved. Well, you know, they did. They came up with a plea agreement. It was fine. But even where I was sitting, I don't have any facilities or any place to send him. So, you know what? Time he got out of jail for that, I don't know. He probably within a couple of days, he committed another offense and then we down in front of some other judge. The county jail is not built for that. That's why I think when, you know, some people talk about defund the police, I think I agree with President Obama. That's a horrible way to present the issue. I think maybe instead of buying a tank or, you know, more guns for the department, there's some ways the city and the department have to look at their budget and say, okay, how much can we carve out? to have somebody working here or two people that are mental health professionals. Okay. Or that we can call because we know uh, those old crazy Hughes acting up again. He's out there running around the yard with, you know, with half his clothes on and, you know, he, blah, 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 you know, and instead of taking me to jail, maybe somebody there can come out, can talk the person down and have some service that they may know of that's available to them. 
And you have to build that in. The state has to build that in their budget. Okay. You know, we how go back. How, how did that happen too? Is it, is it, my understanding is that there used to be a pretty strong community mental health where that we had a lot of hospitals that were set up for that and that they began being defunded in the eighties, I believe. John Engler. And, and is that, and John what, what happened there? And I mean, now I, I just heard a presentation from the Sparrow president. He said that they have anywhere from uh, 15 to 40 individuals in the emergency room on any given night waiting for space because they're in there for a mental health crisis and there's nowhere to put them. What happened here? How, what happened to mental health in Michigan? Well, the Lafayette Clinic, which used to be in the Detroit area, I know that specifically when uh, John Engler was governor, he they quit funding that and closed that down, which causes an issue. Uh, and that was, I think, maybe around the same time uh, that they got rid of Recorder's Court. Recorder's Court in the city of Detroit was where all felony criminal offenses got tried that happened within the city of Detroit. It didn't go to Wayne County Circuit because Wayne County is a huge county, okay? And they were doing it there, but they got the idea because there was a gentleman who was from Gross Point got snatched out of his car, was beaten to death by three rascals in Detroit. And they were found that guilty at trial. So they come up with this whole thing that, you know, blacks don't convict blacks in Detroit, to which I say hogwash. I mean, you know, most of the blacks in in the Michigan Department of Corrections in front of Detroit, guess what? They went through recorder's court. But nope, they got rid of that. And now everybody was in Wayne County, which now had the effect of changing the jury pool and recorders court, your juries were going to be majority African-American by a wide margin. Well, now when you do it Wayne County wide, you have fewer. Okay. You don't have that same uh, percentage of representation. And that's when they started defunding stuff and they closed Lafayette clinic and the money just started, they started putting, putting things elsewhere. I can't tell you necessarily where it went. Okay, but they, they stopped in it, and you know, without proper funding. But listen, it takes forever to get. Uh, you send someone to the um, forensic center for competency or responsibility examination, but God, it takes forever. It, it takes forever to get a report back. I mean, they're that backed up. And they, they always, I mean, they, it, it got worse while I was on the bench. I mean, at times to get, you know, I'm sitting there holding felony cases open because somebody's sitting there down at the forensic center or in the jail waiting to go to the forensic center for an examination as to whether or not they're competent to stay in trial. Okay. And it just, uh, it's the funding. I mean, I'm, they don't have enough people there. And, and I think sometimes uh, some Lawyers, they, they use that as a delay tactic. Okay. I mean, I would refer, I've, I've, I would do motions for people to go to forensic center, but it wasn't a lot of them because most of them you sit there and talk to them. And once you figure out they, they're oriented times three, they know the offense they're charged with committing. They know the role of the judge, the prosecutor, the defense attorney. And they're sitting there able to sit in there and tell you, no, I didn't do that because I was at such and such a place with so-and-so 
from this time to that time and blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? They, they obviously are able to assist in their defense. They don't sound incompetent to me. Okay. But you have a lot of folk that are going down there and it's just getting backed up. And that's just to determine if the person can even go to trial. Okay. And there's the funding for it isn't there. It's not, I guess, a popular uh, area that they want to look into. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know who's going to yeah. step forward now that they have a, now that you folks in Michigan have a Democratic Senate, you got a Democratic House of Representatives, you got a Democratic governor, seems to me, and you got all this money left over from uh, uh, money they got from COVID. Uh, you know, instead of sending $156 to everybody in the state of Michigan, let's take that money and put it into service like that. That and makes a your, lot of sense. It fix your potholes, but I mean, I mean, there are two things you need to do. One is you need to do something about those roads, but secondly, you have to place money in care for humans, for people who cannot care for themselves, who do not have insurance, who do not have family. Okay? You you have to do You have to. Did it get more difficult for when you were a judge? um, Did it get more difficult from the transition from the 1980s to the period that you were a judge, um, did it get more difficult to um, get somebody committed for a mental health issue? I I don't think there was, a, well, understand, when you say committed, okay, you, uh, you, you are, I think, talking about some type of long-term uh, facility I, treatment. I, I admit I'm, I'm a little ignorant on the topic, okay. so I, I would defer to your okay. expertise on this way more than mine. Well, if you mean committed that they need to be there for a period of time to address their issues, uh, I don't think getting them there is necessarily the problem. The problem is where you going to put them and do you have the staff to uh, treat them, uh, the staff to work with them, okay? And is this a person who can be released back into society again? On proper medication, but how do you make mm-hmm. sure they maintain their level that they're taking their medicine every day? Yeah. Okay. You and I, you know, I say just as a general rule, you know what? So we got high blood pressure and cholesterol. Guess what? You take your pills every day. Why? Hey, you know what? Because I don't want to drop dead of a heart attack. Okay. Someone that has you know, some mental, severe mental health issues, they may not be thinking that way. Right. They're not going to say, well, I better take my meds so I don't go out here and kill somebody today or assault someone or do something. Okay. So what I will say, it's, it, it became more difficult. It became a question of, okay, where are you going to put them? What are you going to do with them? So you, so you have a lot of these, uh, specialty courts nowadays uh, where they're trying to figure out how to do things. They have a mental health court. Okay. I'm not really sure how that works. I never participated in that uh, as an attorney uh, or as a judge that was usually handled by someone else. In fact, Lansing didn't have one at the time that I was there. Uh, But usually I think from what I'm hearing, a lot of times those are like group counseling sessions and, you do this or that, and then you come back and you sit in front of the judge and tell them all the wonderful things that have gone on and you're in there for a period of time. But, you know, 
those folks that have seen, you know, people that are manic depressives or bipolar that can, you know, sit and have a great conversation with you right now and three seconds later, boom, you know, they're off the rails. I mean, right. government has to address that. There's no other way. I mean, government has to right. address it. Right. So I wanted to flip around on something uh, and go back to your time as a, as a litigator, as a lawyer. And uh, I understand that you represented Tupac Shakur. I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> yes, you got I did. To ask that. Yeah. You got yep. to. Yep. What, what happened there? Well, he apparently had done a concert at uh, Michigan State University, and he had a baseball bat, which was part of a prop in his act. And there was some Yahoo from Flint whose microphone Tupac was using. And as part of his thing, he dropped it down on the stage. And the guy comes out during his act and picks up and says something to him. And he claims Tupac assaulted him with the bat. And I'm just like, really, dude? But the funny thing is, I didn't know who he was. I had no, I had no idea. I had a young black female secretary at the time. Um, She was in her early 20s, and I remember coming in the office one day, and she was all excited. And she said, Watani, Tyan, be called, and they want you to represent Tupac Shakur. I looked at her, I said, are you drunk? She said, no, Watani, Tyan, be called, they want you to represent Tupac Shakur. I'm like, who the hell is Tupac Shakur? And she said, he played brother in the movie Juice. I said, well, that didn't make my playlist. I, I I didn't know who he was. I had no idea who he was. So, you know, I took the number. This guy was uh, his agent, and I called him back. He was out of Atlanta, and we talked to Chad. And I said, sure, okay, this is what I need. And I said, I'm going out to East Lansing Lockup where he is. So I go out there, and I go up to where the cell is, and he's sitting there. And he didn't have his shirt on, his big thug life written on his tattoos here. I'm like, what the hell? I know that myself. In. But, you know, uh, so, you know, we got him out and he had to come back here a couple, three times for stuff. Every time he came, I would go, they call, I'd go pick him up at the airport and get he and his road manager at the time a room at the Radisson. I figured, I know how to keep him out of trouble. I'd put a parking meter at the Radisson and say, now, you know, pa, police department is right down the street. <laughs> okay. Uh, but we would have some great conversations. I mean, things that he would talk about in life that he wanted to do. And, you know, he said he always wanted to play a lawyer in a movie and he was trying to work. They were working on something with Mickey Rourke. Uh, and we just sit in the office sometimes and we would just, you know, we just chit chat and talk about those things. Uh, we got him taken care of, you know, it took a little assault and battery hit. Uh, and right at that time, he had to be in New York for a trial on that, uh, sexual assault case. So he actually never came back here to do the little nine days he had, uh, which they ended up just saying, okay, fine, we're done with it, because he got sent to some prison time out there. But, gotcha. uh, you know, his persona, when you sat with him one-on-one, it is not what you would think at the time. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it's certainly not like some of these folk you see nowadays. <laughs> yeah. So, you also uh, spent some time on the school board here in Lansing. I did. I did. And I would. What would you say your, what is the state of public education in America today? 
Uh, uh, there are a lot of challenges. There are just a lot of challenges. Some of it has to do with uh, student behavior, uh, parental involvement, and teachers. I mean, they're they're just you got to put them all in the group together. That there's this issue, this problem that you have uh, in Lansing. I was appointed to the board, I want to say it was in 2003. And that was been in September, I believe. And we had an uh, election in November, and some other folk got elected, uh, Linda Cornish, uh, Melanie Rogers. And the three of us, along a couple of, we started to form the nucleus of how we're going to get things done and whip this district into shape. Now, of course, you know, Tad, we get resistance from some of the old timers who've been there because they were just used to doing things the same way. And I remember saying to one of the things that got me is that they would always talk about doing this and that. And they had these meetings, subject kind of, they still talking and talking and talking. And I said to one of my colleagues one day, I said, is this what education is? You want to talk about everything and don't do shit? I said, you know, maybe sometimes you have to try it and just see if it works. Well said. And and once, you know, we have some leadership things going on, and, and there were those of us, six of us, a nine-member board, there were six of us. We generally had the six votes, five to six votes all the time to do things, and the other three would get upset. But it's like, no, we have to turn some things around, and this is the approach we're going to take. Uh, we addressed discipline and school fighting in a way that actually I got some, uh, got it too back and forth with the director of student services. So I said, well, look, the problem you have here, two kids get in a fight at this school, two kids get in a fight at this other school. What the principals do is just totally different. This may be your third fight and you got a three-day suspension. Okay, some other school could be your first fight and you got a five-day suspension. I said, no, we, we can't continue this. And I said, I looked at it this way. First fight, 10-day suspension. Second fight, 20-day suspension. Third fight, 30-day suspension. Now, that's six weeks. And they were like, well, we can't suspend kids for six weeks. I said, why? Their mom and daddy worry about them. Let them figure it out. And we went back and forth on it a lot. And I finally caved in. We caved in. And I said, okay, we'll let the principals have discretion on the first one up to the first 10, up to 10 days, their discretion. I said, but I don't want to see kids suspended who are defending themselves. Okay, I said, if somebody jumps a kid in school and the kid fights back, that child should not be suspended because it's a punishment for them. Right. I said, and the second thing that we're going to do, we have a section in the Code of Conduct is disorderly. I said, if you instigate or you're standing there watching or attending a fight, you get suspended for three days. And I said, because the kids fighting in school, what, for other kids to see? If anybody looking, they ain't fighting. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and we implemented a lot of those things, and the feedback we were getting from public safety at the time was they would hear these kids saying, "Man, I can't get into another fight. I'll be out of school twenty days. Man, that's a whole month." 
the message became clear. Right. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on student improvement and student achievement. And I'm proud to say during the tenure I was on the board, along with Melanie Rogers, Linda Cornish, Ken Jones, uh, Jackie War, uh, Guillermo Lopez, we saw student scores on those standardized tests turn around. I remember I would do a pizza party for any school, any class, where the kids, where they had 100% proficient in whatever the tested area was. First time I did that, we had one. And I'm not saying it's caused it, but my last year on the board, I did three or four of those pizza parties. That's and, we, and we had partners in the community. Hungry Howie's, uh, uh, Chris Golo, uh, who owned Hungry Howie's there. He would donate the pizza. Uh, Airmark uh, was our, our, our food supplier. I got them to donate juice. Okay. And I think the first year we even gave the teachers uh, a certificate of $10 off a pizza or something. But we put the focus back on the kids. So we had that. Our When I left the board in December of 2010, our worst performing elementary building was 88% proficient. Wow. That was our worst. Okay. That's amazing. Our high schools were in trouble. And when we hired Dr. Wallace, we told him, you got to turn these high schools around. And, you know, we caught a lot of help from people because we were about to give him a raise one year. And people that, a lot of people didn't like Dr. Wallace. He wasn't a real people person. I mean, Dr. Banks was great. She'd go out in the building. She'd hug these little kids. You know, I don't want to see him out there hugging these kids. You know, especially these little girls and these girl students. You know, that's not, okay. But he had a different way of getting things done, and he did. His After his first year, uh, Sexton and Everett made safe harbor. The following, what does that mean? Well, you're either failing or you're about to make it, which is a safe harbor that you're close to the little points you had to make. Gotcha. And then they continue the next year. They came off the list of failing wow. schools. Eastern was just the constant issue. We, you know, we just could never get it done there. And I don't know if it was a culture. I mean, at one point we were looking at actually selling the building to Sparrow, but we had some people who stuck their nose in where it shouldn't have been on the board that, you know, that was that. And actually we were looking at getting maybe four to five for that building. I understand the later school board got two. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay, I don't know how you go down a value, but whatever. And, 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 and you know, and the, and the test changed and that's, that became their excuse under, uh, the next superintendent. They would say, well, they changed the test. The test got harder. And I would say to people, I'm off the board now, but I would say to people, well, you know what? The test got harder for students in East Lansing, Okemos, Waverly, Holt, Grand Rapids. The test got harder for everybody. I said, why is it when I look at test results, Okemos and East Lansing, they went down a little bit. But I look at the ones for Lansing, and it's like you just tossed a bowling ball off the top of Michigan National Tower. What happened there? Why did that? 
Well, they'll just tell you the, t- the test got harder. They didn't do stuff. I mean, when what do you, you think ha- happened though, when, when you have ninety six and ninety four percent of your eighth grade students who are not proficient in math, you know what's going to happen when they go to ninth grade. They're not going to pass algebra. They're not going to pass it. And it's going to be so hard to catch up. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what to make of it. I mean, everybody has an excuse or an explanation. I'll just say in some things. My son went to Lansing schools. He did well. Okay. But he found out uh, he did high school in East Lansing and he found out, well, he wasn't as smart as maybe he thought he was. Okay. Uh, His, uh, science, biology in uh, uh, Lansing, he said, told me, he says, they just watch movies every day. Hmm. I'm like, wow. Okay. So you know, he never really had a good grounded background for higher science applications then. I mean, he did well in math, okay, uh, in high school. I mean, and, you know, they had things that they did there that I tried to, get the district to do what what but, drew you to being on the school board i wanted to do some things to help the community do something else you know just you practice like you were do you feel like you were able to help the community oh absolutely and in fact there's another thing you know you know they give the wrong people credit for primate zone there would be no primate zone in Lansing if it were not for Dr. Wallace and myself. Wow. That's amazing. There would be, we could have, I'll never forget. I was in Florida at a conference and Dr. Wallace called me and it was about seven thirty, quarter to eight that morning. And I had like eight thirty tea time. And I'm like, okay, doc, why are you calling me? What's, what's wrong? It must be something wrong because you know I'm about to go play. And he said that uh, his uh, spokesperson, the school spokesman and governmental affairs person, uh, Steve Sakayan, had come to him and told him about this legislation that had passed about districts and cities setting up a promise zone for kids for scholarship. And da, 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 da. I said, okay. And we talked about it. And I said, well, you know, Doc, get some more information. I'll be back next week. Listen, I'll talk about this. He did, and we did. And and we looked at specifically the way it had to be set up, how it was supposed to be done, and then there was a mechanism to recapture city taxes, okay, to help fund it. Doc and I worked on a lot of it. We didn't tell the board because it would then become too political with one or two of the members, and I knew they were going to want to be on it, and their involvement would not have been productive. And we started and we had meetings with uh, Dr. Knight at LCC uh, and his CFO, our CFO would come and we're looking at this and putting this together and how do we put the board together? Okay, because you had, I mean, you had uh, staggered terms of three, two, and one year and we looked at doing things, and it and from different walks of life, really. And we got together and figured out, okay, these are the group that bring something here that we like to, you know, let's put these people on the board. 
Uh, we selected, and in time we brought it back to the board for a vote. We had all the work done. We just weren't going to let a couple of them, who I won't name, okay, we were just not going to let them uh, hijack this. And we had the votes to do it. Nobody gets more upset than when you walk in and well, you sit over there all you want, but let me help you. We got six, we got six votes. We got seven votes. So when it's finished, what you got to say, and then we just go move on. But we looked in business and, uh, we had, uh, Kelly Dean. We had Joel Ferguson. Um, gosh, there was amazing people for this area. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we had, um, and there was somebody else in business. I can't recall. We had somebody from, um, uh, uh, one of our colleagues, Melanie Rogers, was the parent and the parent quote person to be on the board. Uh, Joe Graves, who's a community person, was there. Uh, we had uh, my wife, and some people thought, "Well, why is she there?" I said, "Because she has experience writing grants." She was she was with MSU Science Foundation at the time, and she was used to writing grants for millions of dollars. Where you're starting this project, you gotta have a grant writer. Okay. Uh, and, uh, we have, and then the, uh, legislature got to appoint people uh, the majority leader in the Senate and the, uh, speaker of the house appointed. So, and so we had Barbara Roberts Mason, uh, on, on that initial board as well. Uh, Linda, Linda Lee Tarver, I think she's still on the board. She was appointed by the Republican speaker of the house. Um, Maria Velasquez, we, we had her on there. No, that's not her last name. Oh, God, she hears that she's going to kill me. Uh, but I think she may still be on there. You know, she's a Hispanic woman. We wanted that kind of representation as well. We were really inclusive of folk we had on there. Uh, and that's how it got started. Now, you, know, you got everybody else standing up taking credit for it. Let me tell you something. They didn't have yeah. a damn thing to do about it. They had nothing to do with it until we brought them in. Okay. And I don't, and and what we found is they were doing them initially 2,500 a student. Sad thing really is what we found were students going to LCC. That money was being used for them to take remedial reading, writing, and math courses. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Didn't have skill. Right. So how, when you were, your time as a judge, you know, I guess, what do you see as that pathway to crime? Like you have these, um, these children that are not performing well in school. And then I'm assuming that in some cases you ended up seeing them later before you in your court. Is there anything, how do we stop this, uh, pathway well, to crime or, well, do you, you see know, anything there? There are a lot of different ways. Look, I saw that when I was a practicing attorney. Remember, I, I did basically criminal defense work. It's people, you know, it's too easy for kids from lower socioeconomic levels at times. And from the environment they're in, basically someone driving a nice car, dressed nice, wads of money, jewelry, you know, ooh, you know, they're selling drugs. And it's, it's just too easy for them to get involved in that lifestyle. And I would generally tell them, I would tell them, I said, let me tell you something. You don't get no retirement. You don't get no social security 
or Medicare from selling drugs. A career in drug dealing ends one or two ways, prison or death. Ain't no if they ends a but. I said, you know, you may not make as much money if you work at a store or if you're a school teacher, uh, you know, or you do this. I said, but you know, you're, you're able to walk down the street without, you know, having to look behind your back all the time. I said, because somebody's always want to take your place. Okay. So you have the death factor that people see and they get into, and it's unfortunate. Okay. It's glamorized by Hollywood, that lifestyle and behavior. Okay. And, and you have another problem too, I think is one of those, I think might be one of the bigger ones is when you have children having children. 15, 16 year old gets pregnant, has a baby, what happens? They drop out of school. Sometimes they drop out to take care of the child. Well, they don't go back. So, you know, education was never a priority for them. So how do you instill that now, you know, with your child? And, and that, that, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think the climate in the buildings we did when Dr. Banks was superintendent, when I got on the board, the first bond they had put up, I'll call it the swimming pool bond only because it was some, some millions and millions of dollars and it included a new swimming pool. Well, that went down. Okay. People are going spend money for a swimming pool. Ugh. So when they were looking at a second bond and taking some things out, they hired a, uh, they hired this company and they did a, they did focus group with families and teachers and parents in the district. And what they found, one of the, among the things they found, I mean, a lot of it was directed toward what would you like to see? So they were able to trim down what they were looking for in the bond the second time around. And that's when I got on the board. But one of the things from the study was a lot of the parents said they did not feel welcome in the school building. They didn't wow, feel they, that? That, they felt the I guess the attitude and the way the teachers and or um, staff there treated them or responded mm -hmm. to them. Okay. I mean, so that's going to create a bad culture where the, the parents don't feel like they can be involved or attend mm -hmm. the school or, and then, so they're not going to be as involved in the child's education. Well, that becomes, yeah, it becomes an issue. And, yeah. you know, I'm not saying, uh, if that's accurate or not, my but experience, it was the feeling. yeah. Yeah. And, and my experience when I had a child, when our son was there was different. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna walk in and you're not going to talk to me in the old way. Right. Okay. You're going to answer my questions if I have them, but I would go, I remember he was in elementary school. Every year before the next grade started, I would go in and I would ask his teacher, what do you need? Well, we need a little, you know, a 2040s rounded scissors, or we need to live I would go to Staples or Office Depot and I would buy a bunch of those supplies and bring them. And then every time the kids, you know, once he was at least third grade and, and I think fifth grade, where they took a little standardized test, I always went back and had boxes of new pencils for the kids to take for these standardized tests. Because, you know, the pencils they got, first of all, 
you know, you got a great lead on the pencil, but there's no eraser because they don't erase everything down. Okay. So I always do that. I would take a case of copy, copy paper to the office. Okay. I wasn't there trying to tell them what to do. I was trying to, my work I saw more was to partner with them. And what is it I need to do or should we be doing at home to make sure that our child is successful? Well, I appreciate that because I have a four-year-old that'll be attending kindergarten next year. So I actually just took a note of that. That'll be the first thing that I do is ask the teacher, what do they need? Yeah, 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 you know, there's always something they need. Maybe it's, you know, 20 boxes of crayons. Well, you know, I'm glad I'm in a position to do that. Here's some crayons. Right. Okay. That Um, makes perfect sense. You know, just get ready to sell a lot of dough, a cookie dough to raise money. (laughs) Yeah, we did that too. (laughs) So your your experience being a judge, how did all of your experiences defending so many people and that were wrongly accused and either getting them off before they went to jail or in many cases, getting them out of jail after being wrongly convicted too. How did that inform your time as a judge? Well, I think more so from the fact that I had a large practice and and I represented thousands of people and I was a solo practitioner for the most part. First thing is I knew how to run a docket. Okay. I'm like, no, you need to get in. Okay, what is the issue with this case? You know, when you have pretrials, you sit down with the lawyers and try, okay, what is it? I'm not trying to avoid having the case. I tell them, I don't care about y'all having the trial. That's what I'm here for. Okay, if you want to try the case, let's try the case. But let's make sure the case is ready. Now, what's your evidence look like? What does yours look like? Well, maybe you guys need to find a resolution. I'll go over here and talk. You finish, come back, and we'll see what we can do. And, and the ability to get people to do that and quit all the damn huffing and puffing and puffing up your chest coming in here. I mean, that's, that's not going to, that's not going to do anything. Anybody can lose a case, but can win a case. Sometimes you, you humble up and win a case. Okay. What I didn't like again is the lack of pretrial work. When I got on there, got on the bench, it was interesting, uh, so you had a drunk driving case or some case that the city attorney was doing and we had a pretrial and they would say, well, we don't have a police report yet. And, and they were taking the position. They didn't have to give it to them. I'm like, yeah, you do. And they would file lawyers. I found out they would file a FOIA request. And I'm like, what the hell are you filing a FOIA request for? I said, here's the first thing that's going to happen with a FOIA request. You're going to get a letter back requesting a 15-day extension. That's standard. I said, that's why we're sitting here today at a pretrial to discuss the case, and you have no report. I said, I'll tell you what, and I'll let lawyers know. You don't need to do that. You got a problem, they won't give it to you. Come see me. Bring a subpoena. I'll sign a subpoena. They're going to give it to you. Okay? We, We can cut all this nonsense out. Let's get this case moving. Let's see where it's positioned and what we're going to do. Yeah. And that's the approach I took. I did the same thing with the felony cases. I mean, we would, I think people love to have pretrials because we may have five or six planned an hour uh, exam conferences. I bring everybody in the office together. <laughs> we'd have five, lawyers sitting in there, the prosecutor, we just going through files of cases. Okay, well, what is this? Well, what's your office? 
My wife, I said, that's no offer. I said, you ain't making them no offer. They're not going to they accept it because there's no offer. Okay? You're charged assault GBH. You're offering them felonious assault, which is a four-year. This ain't nothing but a felonious assault case anyway. So, you know, if that's your best offer, fine. We'll see you all at the exam. See you Friday. Next. You know, and we would just do that. Look, they would just sit there. That's something they weren't used to. Because that's not how my colleagues operate. Okay. I never, I'm not going to tell you how to do your case. But I'm just going to point out, well, you got this issue here and that issue there. That could be a problem. Maybe you two need to go out and see if you can do something else or talk before the exam and see if you can come up with something else because this isn't going to work. Or these are the problems you're going to run into. What is your take on, there seems to be kind of a, um, maybe a, a, a change in the way prosecutions are handled, um, you know, in, in cities, at least it, it seems from the outside, you hear that, um, you know, there's, there tends to be a favor towards, um, no cash bond, no cash bail. What? And, and, uh, and it may be a, well, we recently had um, the prosecutor here in Lansing that uh, ended up resigning, and there was at least it, it appears that there was some controversy over the cases that she would choose not to take. Is how, what is your she retired your take on this? She retired. Okay. Well, they come up with. I mean, not everybody can afford bail, and 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 there's no. There's no guideline to say if you commit this offense, it should be within this range. But if you did you don't have any of that. Most of the time, you know, it's a number we pull out of our pocket. And, you know, the more serious it is, you know, the bigger the number. Okay. A lot of people we let out on PR bond. Okay. Because this is what it is. Okay. Marijuana, cocaine, you know, small ones, they have PR bond. You know, you're going to test with me. Don't do any drugs while you're on bond, okay? Don't piss me off and make me revoke your bond, okay? And that's a personal recognizance, right? Yeah. That's where you don't put up any money. You're just on your kind of yeah. your honor kind of the, thing. Okay. There's a dollar amount attached to it, $1,000 PR bond. So if you show back up, you're good. If you don't, you owe record $1,000. But guess what? Just don't even enforce that. And I, I, I would look at stuff and say, well, no wonder people do what they do. You ain't going to do anything about it. You're not doing anything about it. That's why you have a problem. Okay, my colleagues used to have issues with me. Well, I didn't care. You know why? I got results. I remember the jail staff, they used to love to be working when I was on arraignments. Okay, we just have fun. I remember a guy once got picked up. He had, he owed the court fines and costs of about $800. He owed it from some other judge before I was even there. So he's standing there and we're kind of going back and forth, getting information. And I said, look, I said, man, that's a nice coach you got on. I said, man, is that a Pelly Pelly? He said, yeah. I said, man, that sure is nice. I said, man, how much that coat cost you? He said, this, oh, this is about a thousand dollars. I said, oh, okay. Take it off. He looked at me. I said, you heard me. Take it off. You got $1,000 to buy a coat. You must have my money, the court's money. Officer, take that coat. He came back the next day, paid the $800, and told the clerk, yo, Judge Clark, he crazy. That man crazy. <laughs> I said, but you know what? 
I got the eight hundred dollars. And I had colleagues upset with me. Well, you know, if the paper finds out, I don't care if the state journal finds out. I said, you know what? I told Carol Wood about it. Council member Wood loved to go to meetings and tell people that story. Ain't nobody mad about that. That's why you guys got two, three million dollars in the street and you do nothing to collect it. I said, you don't want to send nobody to jail. You don't enforce collection. What message does that send? Why has that happened? What is there like a, a a difference in philosophy on this? Like what what is the background on it seems to be more common now. Is that is now, that correct? Sometimes I... sometimes people have been around too long, they don't know when they need to go. Okay. And my view is simple. I, I don't I don't want you to ever question I mean what I say. Okay. If I tell you you need to do this, you need to do it. And I would always tell people in sentencing, as they got to speak. I tell them, I'm an old baseball guy. Three strikes. I said, you keep coming back here on violations. I said, at some point, it's just going to be done. And I'm just going to send you to jail and we're through. And if that happened and they came back, it's the third, fourth violation. I would just say to them, what did I tell you was going to happen? What did I tell you? You were going to send me to jail. I said, yep, and that's where you're going. Uh, you, know, you know, you, you, it's like kids. When you grow up as a child and you're going to see with your daughter, they know how far to go before they really push that button and you're going to come down. They know what they can get away with. Right. Okay. And when yeah, you, you let them do them it, how to behave. And when you yeah. do that as a judge, you know, he ain't going to do anything. Why should I, why would you comply? You know, I ain't going to do nothing. That's so true. Yeah. So, you know, you just look at it that way, but you know, some people, they don't want to change. They're used to doing it a certain way. That's it. You don't know how much of my colleagues fought me to bring technology to the court. They were still doing search warrants by fax machine. Somebody faxed you at two in the morning. We well, got to get up out of bed, go downstairs, to where your fax machine is, turn on the lights, sit there, read it, that, that, stir out and send it back. And then remember to take it to court the next day because you got the original. I tried to talk about doing it electronically. And I researched it, did all the rules that comply with the court rules and this and that. They didn't want to do it. Well, we have fax machines. I said, yeah, that's so 1985, pardon me. And then I just told him, I said, well, let's have me tell you something. That's it. And I talked to some of the other judges, district judges around as well, because we were doing it at that time. We would all work during weekends. We rotated. I told my bench, I said, well, let me help you all. I said, my son's in high school. Basketball team, track team. I said, they play games out of the area on Tuesday and Friday. And when it's track season, Hell, they could be in Detroit. I said, so, you know, be honest. If it's my weekend or my week and he's got a game in Saline, Michigan, and I'm on call, I said, I don't know nobody down there. So I get a call from Metro and they need a drug search warrant. I'm going to tell them I can't help them. They're going to call one of you. I said, I'm not going to sit at home waiting for a call that may never come. 
I'm going to be out here supporting my son. Yeah. All of a sudden, they were like, well, you can try, yeah, uh-huh. And, you know, it was set up, they had, everybody had iPads. And actually, I really wanted to get it done in police cars as well. Okay. And they have the infrastructure to do it because you get stopped at 10 o'clock for drunk driving. A lot of times the blood isn't being drawn till midnight. Okay. Time they take them back, do this and that, draw up right up the search warrant for blood, send it to you. You send it back to them and then they get the sparrow. You can do that from the car. You got a computer in the car, put the template in, type it up. Email it to me. I read it, email it to you, and guess what? You got a printer in the car. So when you once you send it to me, just drive the sparrow. Tell you get the sparrow, you can just tear it off and walk in. Here it is. But what we did with the iPads, you get they still have to call and tell you that it's coming. But you know, I just reach over in the bed, grab my iPad when it comes. I can read it. And if it's good. Drop and drag my signature and the date, email it back to them with a copy to the clerk's office. I go back to sleep. I don't have to worry about taking no search warrant in the next day. It's all done electronically. Wow. So you were really 24-7 as a judge. Oh, try to get that done. I got them to start to look at stuff. Now, not everybody would do it. And we would do that on arrest warrants and complaint. You know, instead of, you know... They call you on Saturday morning and say, okay, judge, we're ready. Well, you go downtown to your office. You might spend the first 45 minutes swearing out complaints and warrants before you see anybody. And then they got to take it, and then they got to go set up the file. Then you start doing arraignments. I'm like, well, I have to do all this. So I had it set up where there was an affidavit form that they could swear to, include the facts. I said, I don't need a book. Okay? It was domestic violence. Uh, Joe and Mary have been married for six years. Joe came home from drinking. Uh, Mary asked him where he'd been. He slapped her three times, and she has a bruised face. I don't need a whole lot more facts to say probable cause that this offense took place. What they would do, they'd call me. It's okay. We'll send them over. And they would, they would email it over. I sit down, have my cup of tea. In the morning, I'm looking at it. I'm signing them, emailing them all back to them. When I email it back to them, they know now I'm on my way. I get in the car. I go down there. Within 10 minutes, we're ready to rock and roll. Okay? Hmm. We're, ready, we got, we're ready to do arraignments. Oh, they fought me on that. I told them, I said, you folks are going to learn. I said, you know, you either get on the bus or you're going to get hit by the bus. Yeah. Well, guess what happened when COVID came along? They behinds got hit by the bus. All right. Okay. So now all the stuff I talked about doing and, and, and doing recordings from home, I said, why do I even have to come down here to do an arraignment? I, we got technology to do it. Yeah. Now they do them. They keep them on YouTube. One meeting, a judge from East Lansing told him, said, well, this is the stuff Judge Clark talked about four years ago. <laughs> Out of your time. I, exactly. But, uh, you know. I tell people, nobody, you're not going to work harder than me. Okay. This isn't about not working hard. It's about working smart. That's right. And, and there's so a difference. How, well, I, 
are you familiar with the debate around the you know police issues and the question of qualified immunity i am but let's go back for a minute to bond yeah yeah but yeah so i'm i'm you know i'm out here in new york now wife is vice president of stony brook university and we were at an event and i was talking to some judges they're casting this bond here is crazy i don't understand it they don't even let the judges consider the potential danger to society the person represents. Yeah. So the person can just get out without any. They let so many people out without any bond here. It's crazy. And I mean, I sent one of the, I sent this judge, she was the chief judge of some of a civil court, but I sent her a copy of Michigan court rules that these are things we can look at. So why can't you? So why can't you determine? You, they cannot consider whether or not the person represents a danger to society. Uh, it's crazy here. What would be the rationale behind that? Why would somebody think that's a good idea? Legislature. So it's a the, political issue. Yep. Yep. And, you know, the, the, the Republicans beat them up on that during the election. It didn't necessarily do a whole lot. But, it, I mean, it, it, it does present an issue. I mean, come on. The guy knocks somebody outside the head with a baseball bat three times and he's out without posting it. He's out on the PR bomb without posting a what? I mean, I understand. Do you think that, that increases crime? Well, I, I think, again, it may send a message of, well, ain't nobody going to do anything. I don't believe you lock people up. And I don't believe you're guilty just because you're arrested. But there should be something to make you stop and think. Because there's some people that, I'm sorry, should not be released pending. You go in a store, fire a couple of shots and rob somebody. Uh, no, I think maybe you need to sit down until we get your case resolved. I'm worried about you. Or these people who shoot at the police. Well, how shoot at the police? What chance do you and I have? Okay. I mean, I think you have to look at it. I don't think bonds I set were crazy. I mean, I did set a $15 million bond on a guy. Wow. But he wouldn't tell me his name. Wouldn't answer any of my questions. Had an attitude. Well, okay, you buy $15 million. See ya. <laughs> he was like, he looked at him. Have a good day. I mean, I know it's going to probably get reduced at some point. Okay. But I'm just saying, it's like, well, I don't know who you are, so you know what? I'm not letting you go anywhere until I do. Right. Okay. And and some things you look at, I mean, something, you know, you said two, $300 cash bond. Why? Because, you know, if they come in and plead guilty, how much are you going to find them? Two, $300. You're done. Okay. I don't have to worry about putting you on probation, chasing you down to make your payment. Well, hell, they don't even want to do that anymore. Really? I said, so you don't send somebody to jail. You sense financing costs, and now they don't pay it, and you can't jail them or, you know, give them hell about it. I said, well, why do you do anything? What message does this send? It sends a message that nothing's going to happen. And that's why most people, I mean, you talk about experience I had with people committing crimes as a judge. No. It's when I was a lawyer. <clears throat> when I was a lawyer. Okay. Because then I can really talk to them. That's why when I was on the bench, I'm, I wasn't trying to send nobody to jail. You know why? 
It hurts them more when you take the money out of their pocket. Hmm. Okay. They don't want to part with the money. Go to jail 10 days, that don't bother them. Hell, they probably know two, three people out there. But, wow. but you, know, you take their money and you owe me money and you come in court like this. I had one guy come in, he had on these designer Timberland boots and he had on this look, nice leather coat, his head and stuff. I was like, Timberlands, you got on designer ones, aren't they? I said, yeah, those are $300. I said, oh, you got a Burberry jacket on? What was that? What that run? 400 I said, I know the cap you got on was 75 I said, because I got one just like it. I said, so you come in here, you got $1,000 worth of clothes on, and you're going to tell me, excuse me, that you can't pay this $50 a month that you asked to pay? I always ask them, well, what can you pay a month? Well, I had one guy, he's sitting there, I find him a hundred dollars, whatever, he's sitting there fiddling around in his pocket and he pulled out a 20, talking about that's all he had. I said, your hand was in your pocket too long, empty it to roll like that. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm watching him. I, I know what he's doing. Come on. I'm, I'm watching you, dude. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I had one guy, he owed, I forget how much money, it was a dude. About eight, nine hundred dollars. And he was from outside of Lansing area. And he came. He thought he was gonna leave. I no. Ten days in jail. Go have a seat. He the police cuffing, they're taking him down the hall. He raising all kind of hell, dragging his feet. They dragging him down the hall. They get to the window. He says, Okay, take me to the window, let me pay him. They came back and told me. They said he pulled out a wide like that, paid the six hundred bucks. Okay. I'm telling you, that was the thing. They don't want to part with the money. Okay. But like I said, here, I think bail should be reasonable. I mean, generally, if you're charged with murder, I mean, nobody's going to let you out. But some of these other offenses, you have to have something to guarantee that people will return. They argue that in the federal system, 98% of the people on a PR bond, okay, on their own release, come back. I said, yeah, it's the federal government. I said, if they catch you in St. Louis, they're going to send somebody to bring you back. Heck, here, if you're in Detroit and get caught, they're going to let you go because nobody, the Atlanta police are not going to drive down there to get you. I said, feds are different. Man, they send the marshal after you, put you on their plane, bring you back. I said, you can't compare them to. You just, you can. That makes sense. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, your question was. Well, I was just wondering if you had a take, you know, you hear with this, the issues surrounding uh, concerns about the police, and you hear about the idea of qualified immunity, and that, um, you know, some people argue that if you ended qualified immunity for the police, that it would potentially resolve some of these issues. And I, I have no, uh, you know, I'm pretty ignorant on the topic. So I just wondered, since I have you, do you have a, do you have a, a, a say in that? Well, I think with that, it's harder to sue. And, and as a practical matter, the officer isn't going to pay anyway. The municipality is going to pay. Okay. Well, Rodney Ball with the claw because he didn't reach in his pocket and pull out $2 million. Okay. That came from LCC. So I think 
the immunity issue has to be looked at. I think it should, you set a reasonable person standard. Looking at the conduct that led to this, is it reasonable to assume that there could be liability by the police officer? I mean, it's something like that. Is my understanding right? It's right now. It's a, it's a very high bar, isn't it? Where it's like the, the police officer has to know for certain that that specific instance would be illegal. Is that how it works? Well, I think that, I think that's pretty close to it, but you know, something, if you look at, I mean, you know, we all saw, and I think because of COVID, a lot of people became educated on police conduct when we saw George, the George Floyd matter. Okay. I mean, that was so obvious. You don't need qualified immunity. I mean, you know, you're going to beat that just by watching what they did. And officers get upset. Well, you know what? You have to change the way you deal with people. You have to change the way you do things. And I'm sorry. You see that type of egregious conduct happen more where you have a white officer and a black defendant. But black cops ain't going to be left out. They're going to join too. And we just saw that in, um, oh, the Scorpion unit that was in um, Memphis, in Tennessee, with the guy that was killed in the video. And now we see another video from, I think it's Virginia, in this hospital where I'm like, why do you have 10 deputies and six, excuse me, hospital personnel in here trying to subdue this person. And I'm standing around looking. I'm like, oh my gosh. I said, well, that's a problem right there. That it takes that many. But you can't, I mean, look at some of the shooting. Now, there was one in South Carolina years ago. They tried to stop the guy because he had a warrant out for child support. He's driving all crazy and he finally bails in, on his car. And he's running in some field. The cop gets out and he shoots him, shoots him in the back. Really? Really? For a child support warrant, you do this? You don't have to. First of all, the guy was driving a Mercedes. You have the car. <laughs> okay, you got the car. Right. You're going right. to find it. It ain't hard to find. Or you know what? If I was a judge, you got the car, good. Put it up for sale. We're going to take time. We're going we're gonna to sneeze the car. Yeah, that's it. Now, or a guy is running from the police when he has a knife, but he's running away from you. Why are you, why are you shooting at him? Why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to run? And I think folks look at it. I mean, it's interesting. You see more people getting upset because uh, Donald Trump might get indicted. Okay than they do when they see this stuff on TV. Well, they shouldn't have ran. Okay, so that means you have a right to kill somebody. Okay, but you see nothing wrong with anything he's alleged, that Trump's alleged to have done. I'm not saying he did anything. Okay, but I'm just saying you have this information and you're more upset about this, yet you get Kevin McCarthy and them talk about equal justice. Really? For who? Because I never hear you say anything when people are getting shot in the back 
or get a knee in the chest and they're suffocated. Okay. Or this guy, Hamadou Diallo in New York, where the, the police in the precinct beat the crap out of him and took a broomstick and shoved it up his rectum. I don't remember them coming out complaining about that. Okay. So, and I think a lot of it, it it's cultural. I mean, it's the way things have been done. Okay. There's no dip. Some of it. And I give a lot of credit to those officers. I say a lot to police and Lansing. You know, I don't recall us really ever having one like that. There may have been maybe one or two. I don't know. There's some talk about the girl who was in the bank at three in the morning and the police shot her. And there's a lot of back and forth about what she did and he did and or didn't do. Okay. But we don't see a lot of that there. And, and I'm grateful for that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I used to get the, you, you wanted to be a police officer originally, <laughs> correct? Yeah, man. Where did you dig that up at? <laughs> I, I don't tell too many people that scared of you. Well, I was, uh, I was a criminal justice major at Wayne State University. Yeah, I wanted to join the Detroit police department and I did went to the academy and the next day they said, well, we're not taking a class, but we don't have any money. Oh, okay. Bye. And the rest is history. <laughs> you just, uh, as I said originally, I, I've just been so impressed with your career and your accomplishments and everything you did for Lansing. And I, and I thank you. Um, thank you. You're what are you? What are you most proud of as your professional accomplishments? I know outside of your family and obviously the things that you're very proud of uh, in your family life. But what are you most accomplished for? Maybe for what you did for Lance or proud of of what you did for Lansing or in your professional career. I'm going to say, uh, you know, you, you got different categories of things, you know, you did, you know, working in politics and then, you know, doing stuff with the school district. I think what I'm most proud of has been my ability to help people that needed help. Okay. And sometimes the, at, at risk to my own personal safety. Okay. Um, there was an instance one year where I got a call from some people their uh, brother had shot a Lansing police officer and they were looking for him and he wanted to turn himself in. But obviously they were afraid, you know, what might happen. And I discussed it with my wife and she wasn't real happy at the time, but she understood. And I went down the LPD and I told them specifically the officers I wanted. I said, I want Lieutenant Parks, and Officer Gill. There were two cops I knew. And I knew we would be all set. And I said, and I'll need a vest. Okay. And we went to the house where he was, and I talked to him by phone. I said, now come out, don't have anything in your hand. Now we're riding there, and Parks had a shotgun across his lap. And Gill had his firearm, because we got the car and the doors were open. I remember Gill saying, you move your head. And I turned around, and he had the gun trained on the house and my big head was in the way. So I was like, oh, right. let me come over here. And, and, you know, he came out, of course, you know, he had a phone in his head. I'm like, drop the phone. Okay. Which he did. So they saw he had nothing in his hand. They took him into custody. And, and that was good. I was very pleased about that, that we were able to do that. Uh, I've been places before. Uh, I remember I went to quality dairy one day. There's the one there on Saginaw and Cedar. And I saw the lady behind the counter, her name on her 
name tag. And I looked at it and it was familiar to me. And I put my stuff I was buying on the counter and she said, are you attorney Clark? I said, yes, I am. And she introduced herself and she said, I'm so-and-so's mother mentioned her son's name. And I said, okay, that's, I, I thought that's who you might be. And I said, well, how's he doing? And I had represented him on a case and we got him a YTA status so that once he completed his record was clear. And she said, you know, you helped him out of a bad situation. Uh, he went to law school, he passed the bar and he's practicing law in Detroit. And it's made wow. me feel so, wow. so when you, you know, or, or I go someplace and somebody will tell me, you know, you helped a friend of mine out, they're doing well. Uh, I was in a home depot one day and I'm uh, standing in line, this guy behind me and he said, are you judge Clark? And I'm thinking, oh shit, you know, excuse my language. I'm sorry. The way he That's said right. it. And he said, you sentenced me and you put me in jail. And I said, I did. He said, yeah. He said, and I want to thank you. He said, cause I haven't had a drink in six months. He said, I realized that that was just not doing me well in life. Okay. And I want to thank you. So I, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's those stories that I like. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It's you know, amazing. You know, I'm not a perfect man, but nobody is. And, and I'd rather be defined by what I did to help people than a lot of other stuff. And, and, and people there would know, and there are people there that know, but I'm just saying those stories make me feel better. Yeah. I think that's the perfect place to end it. Unless okay. you want to talk about anything else. Cause I just loved how you wrapped that up. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Like I said, those, I mean, yeah, I did things for Lancy, but it's more, I did things for people. in So, you know, and I tried to show yeah. people in my work on the school board and other, um, social groups I was with, here's a different way to do something. Okay. That you might get a better result from. And if we don't try, we're not going to know. That's right. Right. But I said, it's about, as my father, rest of soul, used to always tell me, he said, you have to look out for the common man. That's right. Yep. Well, judge Hugh Clark, thank you so much. I really appreciate this time together. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs>